So how objective is the law anyway? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank the people who have thanked us and helped us for so long, including James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Joe Targonski, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. Thank you for all of your support. And, Patty, I've got to say, we've got a special episode today. It's such an expansive episode that I didn't even know what to title it because we have such a big personality here today, Ellie Mistal, who is somebody who I don't think you could confine by any topic or box it in any possible way. Well, I will say this. Uh, my entire household is very excited because we're all fans. So I'm a little bit ah. geeked out. <laughs> well, you know, Ellie is somebody who has very provocative views about the law, very interesting views. And this is what I'll say to, my, to our listeners. I, I, I'm sure I'm not going to agree with everything Ellie says, but I think I agree with a lot of things he says. And when I disagree with him, I think there's something to what he's saying. In other words... He's somebody who says a lot of provocative things, but he is a person of substance. He, he graduated from Harvard Law School. He's a very, very smart guy. And part of what makes him interesting to me is he says things about the law that are going to be different from a lot of the people you may read on Twitter or see on television. And I think that part of that is because of who he is. This is a guy who's not practicing law. He's not a professor. He hasn't had some long career uh, in in a justice department or something like that. He's somebody who's trained as a lawyer, but is you know unconstrained and un- unfettered, giving you a very, I would say, bold view on a lot of legal issues. And that's the thing too is it's exciting because you know he has this. Uh, very forward thinking and, and wanting to, he wants to make people or help people look at the law differently and pull them away from whether it's, you, you know, your understanding of the law from watching TV. I mean, I know my husband will pause like a scene in Perry Mason. He's like, okay, this, they had to have had legal consultants. I mean, we had, we consume the law both uh, personally when we are in a situation that necess- necessitates us being in a courtroom but for the most part, most of us watch it on TV and think we have an understanding of it, whether it's, uh, you know, law and order or watching hearings and appointment uh, hearings. You know, the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation hearings were complete, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of group participation for everybody. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say. And I'm excited what he brings to the landscape of legal discussion, really. Yeah. I, I, well, you know, and that's I, I do want to say to our to our listeners, you know, I, I talked up front in the intro about whether the law is objective. That's one of one of the Ellie's main points in his view. The law is an adversarial process, so there, there, you can't just point to something and say what the law is. I don't know. I don't think I completely agree with it. I, I'm try, I've been, you know, it's something that is you can't say broad in a broad stroke completely, but there's something to it. And what I will say is this. Folks on the Internet, on Twitter, out in the public, on your radio show, Patty, have this view that like law 
is something that you could just look up in a book somewhere. I know when I went to law school, my mom told me I'll never forget we were on our way uh, driving uh, to law school. Uh, and my mom's like, you know, I'm not sure you're going to do well because you were always were bad at foreign languages with all the memorization oh, of the words. Oh, no. You know, you're going to have trouble memorizing all these laws and law books and things like that, which is, the reality is that's not at all um, what law is like, is not just, you know, looking something up in a book. If You know, that, that would make it be a lot easier. And I think the, the law has changed so much over the course of our even our lifetimes, right? I mean, it used to be that gay marriage was against the law and that someone like Gavin Newsom was a transgressor for marrying gay people when he was the mayor of San Francisco to, of course, it being enshrined in the, con- in the Constitution, right? So there are, um, there are changes in the law over time, and not all laws that are in the books are just or right, as we've seen in our past where we've had laws that, for example— discriminate against uh, black people and others well that's the thing is that like we think of uh, arguing right that's what you guys do is is you argue one side or the other and how you know how can it be objective if it's like this is what we believe this is what our our side believes it has to come from a place of belief doesn't it in a lot of ways this is my interpretation you know some certain things can be very um well defined in the law in other words you know, you have X number of days to file your response brief sure. or something like that. Okay. Uh, or you could only spend X amount of money in the general election or whatever it may be, some hard, something that's very defined. But it is often the case that there is disagreement about what, and that's as, as, I, as I think Ellie will point out, I'm sure, because he said this uh, uh, many times, is that you know, the law is an adversarial process. I'm a litigator. I literally just had a trial yesterday uh, in court. And, uh, you know, in that trial, I had a point of view. The guy arguing closing arguments against me had a different point of view. I was fortunate my side won. But, you know, if his side won, obviously there's their difference of view in terms of not only the law, the facts of a case, but also how the law applies to it. But I think I think I do think you can be when I, when I, in terms of the answering the question in the, that I asked up front, I think the law can be objective in a certain sense. In other words, for example, it very well it, it is the case that you can look up in a law book and find out that you're not supposed to take classified information out of a, uh, a secure location. And in addition to that, it is also, I would say, you know, you can you could say with certain you could say with a lot of certainty whether or not, you know, how the system works. In other words, this type of person is likely to be prosecuted or not and things like that. But in terms of, you know, whether or not a particular case should be brought or whether a particular person is going to win or lose in a case, I think uh, there's an element of judgment there. And there's an element that I do think that there's that you that, that some of that can be argued. Absolutely. Uh, I, uh, I'm excited to hear what he has to say on so many different, th- and I know people are, t- people want to get excited about the law and, and you have brought so much of that over the last few years, uh, helping us pace ourselves in all the madness of the Trump administration and, and the now ensuing fallout. Uh, but there's so much work to be done. 
and and you know people look to the courts as uh as being sort of like i think we think of it as a stabilizing factor so okay well certainly this justice this judge will uh have some uh you know there'll, there'll be some sort of justice brought whether it's in front of a judge or a jury but we also have seen you know we we know inherently that that's not always the case you know we see like the the kyle rittenhouse case in wisconsin um, when we go, we, that's not what we would have thought would be the outcome. You know, we think, oh, come on, he had a gun. He went to this situation, obviously, to hurt people, and and uh, and we had a judge who seemed to be very biased through the whole case. So uh, and and do things that we would think were like that. He can't get away with that. So it, it is a very, uh, it's very, it's we know that it's malleable, but we don't want it to be. Does that make sense? Uh, I I think it does. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, let me bring in our guest, Ellie Mistal. If you don't know Ellie, you probably haven't been watching much cable news because he's on uh, quite a bit uh, on MSNBC. He's on Sirius XM quite a bit as well, if you listen to the radio. Uh, and he is the justice correspondent for the nation, uh, covering the courts, the criminal justice system, and so forth. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, trained as a lawyer, actually practiced at a big law firm for a period of time uh, before going full-time into legal commentary. And he is quite a character. So if you if you don't remember whether you've, you've heard of this guy or seen him, I have the feeling when you hear his voice, you will, because he's got interesting and provocative views. So let's bring in Ellie Mistal. Welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I've got to say, uh, this is a, a very special episode of On Topic. Uh, usually we have very narrow topics where we're talking about something for the week. Obviously, it's a good time to have you on because we're. I think I'm focused on the Supreme Court. I, I think others are too, but you are beyond any legal topic. And one of the things I think is so cool about you is – most people who comment on the law are really boring, and I'll put myself in that category. I am a boring legal commentator. Um, you are interesting and provocative, but your thoughts about the law have a lot of substance to them because you have some real legal background. So I can't wait. Uh, I know Patty's jazzed up because you are. We, we have, finally have somebody on the podcast funnier than her. Uh, no offense, <laughs> Patty. Fine. I appreciate. Well, not legally based humor. That's my problem. I just didn't there's develop that your problem. Skill set. Yes. Ellie's like Ellie's like if you took the better parts of both of us and put them together to create like a super there you go podcast house. It would be you guys. Ellie. You guys are two time and setting me up for massive failure. <laughs> but uh, you know, as as I always try to say to people, look, all I try to do is be not wrong, right? As a lawyer, being right is hard, right? Because you know, there's always some Westlaw thing, some somebody can shepherdize something that'll that'll prove. So <laughs> I don't try to be right. I try to be not demonstrably wrong in my legal analysis <laughs> and go from there. I love it. Well, Ellie, you know, I got to tell you one thing that our our listeners may not know is that you know you got your start, at least to me, from what the first time I learned of you was on this, I don't know if you call it a blog or website called Above the Law, which is was is also a very interesting website, right? What are the, what are the very like a few fun websites about elite law firms and the law and all sorts of stuff like that that David Latt started. And they had like a blind, uh, they had a blind contest of like, you didn't know anyone's name or who they were or what they looked like. And they're like, we're going to hire a new writer. And there was like a couple people in that group. And then you won this blind contest where if people didn't know who you were, what you look like or anything about you, they chose you as the best writer. This was years ago. 
yeah, this is this is my big my big break. I I won my job for my big break, kind of American Idol style. Uh, David Latt, when he was getting promoted, as Above the Law was getting bigger, he wanted to bring on some more help, and he and Cashmere Hill, actually, who's now a tech columnist for the New York Times, they came up with the idea of this contest that they would pick eight finalists. We would write under pseudonyms for the blog. And the the readers would vote us off uh, twice a, two, two, two a week um, for three weeks. Uh, honestly, those three weeks, those were more stressful than three weeks before the bar exam for me. Um, and I won the contest. But it, it's funny because, like, I, I – because, uh, you know, so we had a synonym and we had to pick an avatar, right? And I was kind of choosing between two options. One was the brain from Peaky and the Brain because I kind of like that. I like the cartoon. I think it's funny and – um, kind of fits my personality, right? But the other, like my wife is from Zimbabwe and she has this really cool statue of uh, Shaka Zulu. So I was going to do like a Shaka Zulu uh, statue. And I really honestly couldn't decide uh, which which to go with. And so I asked my mother and my mother was like, do you want to make a statement or or do you want to win? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, well, I like to win. She's like, well, I think I know which one you're picking. I was like, yep. So I went with the, with, uh, the brain from Pinky and the Brain. People were shocked when they found out who they voted for. Yeah, that's one thing. I that's why I started with this. Because do you, do you think you would have won if you had your photo and your identity as part of this? Nope, nope, not at all. I don't think it would have been close. Actually, yeah, because because people's view of what you were and what you had to contribute might have been different. It's also, and I've I've noticed this throughout my career. Like it's it's I can say the same thing, right? But if you think that it's coming. Um, from a black person versus a white person, it's just going to hit differently. It's just, you're going to think that it's coming um, from a di- different place. It doesn't, the, the words actually don't matter. And we see this in, in so many different aspects of media we'll, 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 where they'll say like, oh, this network has a lot of liberal people on it. It's like, well, no, it has a lot of black people. It's different. Mm-hmm. You don't know that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, look, there's Candace. Yeah. Just kind of assuming. That, that because they're black, they're liberal. You're assuming that because I'm black, I'm more liberal, more radical than it would necessarily be um, from the words on the page, right? So like there was an interesting, so one of the, in, just to go back to the contest, like week two or something, um, one, of the, one of the challenges was we had to do uh, uh, some content that would be serializable, right? So it could appear on multiple days. That was part of the, part of the, the training, right? Um, and so I did a fake lawyer bracket. Right. I was just like, all right, who you got? You know, uh, Jack McCoy versus Lionel Hutz. Right. And that's <laughs> the one eight matchup. And we kind of, you know, did, I think Atticus Fitch won because he always wins those. Um, every lawyer wants to think of themselves as Atticus Finch. Right. So I did that. And I and, you know, again, as a as a person who's racist, didn't know it's kind of a fun cultural thing to do right you can imagine that coming from a black person like oh look at the black person doing some sports thing doing some fluff can't get serious like you could have imagined like all of those comments kind of bubbling up to the surface um if they had known uh of my race before um i did the contest so yeah i mean it's it's yeah, don lemon got in some some trouble because he said that he uh you know don lemon the cnn for your listeners don't know is the cnn anchor um, one of the only uh, black primetime cable news anchors. Um, and he called himself openly black, right? And it's kind of funny because, like, he's on TV. Like, yeah, yeah, Don, we know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but there's some truth to that. There's certainly, you know, when I'm writing, you don't have to know, you know, based on my name, what my race is, right? You don't have to know that in my writing. I make you know that. 
I, I, I want you to know that. I want you to, to understand that my stuff is coming from a certain perspective, a perspective that has been historically left out of legal coverage, certainly as perspective that has historically been left out of Supreme Court coverage. And so I make it, I make myself opening open, openly Black um, in my writing. Um, I don't have to, I choose to do that. Um, when I'm on TV, it's a little bit more, you know, obvious. Well, absolutely. Like one thing that you do is you lean in, right? You lean into the fact that you are somebody who is not only bringing a perspective to the law, but one thing that I find that that happens in legal commentary is that people are constrained by their desire not to um, they're, they're repeat players in the system. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so in other words, they may be appearing before a judge. They may be to, you know, have another client that has a different position or they may need a different job at some point. So they have to be careful and thoughtful about the positions that they take. And you, I think you made a conscious choice early in your legal career that you want or your legal career career that you wanted, you wanted to be a truth teller, period. Right. And you didn't care about any of that stuff. And that meant that I was never going to go back. Right. When I you brought up above the law, one of the decisions I had to make before I took that job um, after I won the contest was, you know, OK, if I do this, I can't go back to big law. You get like mm-hmm. you get that. Right? <laughs> like, that's, yep. like I am closing that door. Um, and then certainly as my career progressed, my journalism career progressed, you know, there were points where I was just like, you know, I'm never going to be an Article Three judge like that. That was something that I might, I thought about wanting, you know, that I thought could happen for me. And you know, you write a couple articles, you're like, you know what? That's that's not going to happen now. <laughs> um, and you have to like, you have to know that before you write it, I guess, or at least you have to know that before you hit the publish button. Um, that you know, that one of your that that not every option is going to remain open to you. But once you accept that, yes, absolutely, it is it is freeing. It, it allows you to to maybe say things, to maybe take positions that other people. It's not that they disagree, and I'm I'm, I'm sure you do too. You meet a lot of people um, in the system who agree with you, who are happy that you're out there saying what you say. They can't say it because they still want to be an Article Three judge because they still have to go in front of some of these uh, 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 judges and make arguments because they still have to share a faculty lounge with some of mm-hmm. these professors, right? And I don't always, you know, I don't begrudge people necessarily um, who 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 are just trying to go about their lives and go about their jobs and 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 are not trying to ruffle feathers. That's not my way, but I I understand why people have that. Uh, uh, Way, 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 way people take that approach right but that means also that i feel like i have a responsibility i feel like i have a duty sometimes to say these things that lots of people are thinking but not everybody is either has the platform or is empowered or has the nothing to loseness um that i have and thus have the ability to say these things yeah i i have to say that uh i get a lot from other former federal prosecutors I know, like I, for example, I am the only person from my former office in Chicago, which is one of the biggest U.S. attorney's offices because, you know, New York split up into different offices, but Chicago's got one big office. No one else is out there talking about anything, uh, you know, in public, the public eye about about this sort of, you know, but they were certainly were not during the Trump era. 
and there's like, well, how could you say this or that? Or they're they're very skeptical of it, but they all will agree that Trump. I mean, they're not like they were voting for Donald Trump. They all have those same concerns about the rule of law. But it's just the sense that you know you may have a potential client who views things differently, and it does close off options. Uh, I and I am like I'm timid. I am nothing compared to you. Not timid, but I mean I'm I'm measured, right, compared to you in my commentary. And people are institutionalists. I mean, look, <laughs> the law self-selects for people who believe in institutionalism, for people who believe in discretion, for people who believe in the system. That's you. You, you don't if you if you don't believe in the system, you you drop out of school, right? <laughs> you don't go. You don't go to law school. Um, you go to you go to business school. Uh, um, if you don't believe in the system, so the the law self selects for. For, for that kind of mentality, um, which then kind of impacts and feeds on itself when you put people in careerist situations, right? You got people, you know, coming out of your office, for instance, who still might want to be judges someday, who still could be judges someday. And certainly that, that, that career option will be easier for them if they keep their mouth shut about certain things. Um, but then there were also people who don't want to be judges, but like when Bill Barr showed up, like re- wanted to believe wanted to believe that bill barr was going to set things right because he had been there before right it's the it's the institute it's the institutionalized kind of approach right whereas i kind of saw it plainly i was like you know this guy who auditioned for the job talking about how talking about his his ridiculous unitary executive theory talking about how he's going to put you know basically crack skulls to keep the peace that guy is not going to be the guy who then comes in and stands up to Trump and stands up for the rule of law. I saw that plainly on the, on the day that he was announced on the day that he was put forward, that, that he was nominated, but other people, other institutionalists had that, you know, month, month, three month, five month grace period before the Mueller, before he did what he did to the Mueller report, where they hoped that Bill Barr would be better than he was. That's institutionalism kind of, kind of leaking out of people. And unfortunately, from my perspective, that institutionalism is overrepresented in terms of the media coverage of the law. The other thing that's worth kind of pointing out is that, you know, the, there are so few people that are allowed to even talk about the law. And then the ones that have enough legal training to know what they're talking about are, again, kind of plucked generally from that institutionalist mindset as opposed to from an outsider's mindset. Yeah, it's interesting. Although, you know, well, let, let, let's, uh, you know, speaking of the institutionalist mindset, one thing that, that happened recently, I, I don't know if you noticed, is, you know, Maggie Haberman talked about how, for when she was discussing recently, how the Trump administration did, you know, was unlawful in terms of the Presidential Records Act. She said, well, if a prosecutor isn't looking at the issue, then it's not really unlawful. We have to see what the Justice Department's going to do. Right. In other words, if the Justice Department isn't bringing a case, then it's not really unlawful, which, of course, we both know as lawyers is false. Yep. But it's an interesting I thought it was an interesting insight into how how uh, these journalists view the issue. And I think partly and you tell me if you disagree, I think partly it's because there's a lot of people online who will like who will do all these mental gymnastics and say everything is against the law and not draw the distinction between like, yeah, this is against the law. But there's a difference between that and like something that's going to send somebody to prison for 20 years, right? I mean, I think I think the problem comes from two different places, right? One, it comes from the 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 idea that's really locked in the general public's mind that the law is objective, right? 
mm-hmm. which is weird to me because the entire system is adversarial. Like the whole point of the system is to be adversarial. And so what I think the problem is, is that people cannot distinguish between the law being objective, which it is not. It is literally an adversarial process where we pick winners and losers based on outcomes that we like or don't like versus the law's ability to be applied objectively, which it is and must be. And if it's not applied objectively, it is no law. It is it is despotism. Right. And so those are the those are two different. Those are kind of the same word used in two different contexts that lead you to two very different conclusions about the world you're living in, right? If you think that the law is objective, then you think that basically, you know, heads on sticks could tell you. But you think that the law could be spit out to you by an algorithm or a computer, which of course it can't be. So part of it is that people don't understand that the, the to do law is to be making an argument. I think this should be illegal. I think this is the way to make this conduct look like other things that are illegal. I think this conduct should be punished. Like that's that's part that's what a prosecutor is doing. They're making an argument that their that the conduct that they have uncovered should be punished. Whereas a defense attorney is saying, no, 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 this conduct was not illegal at all. Either your facts are wrong or your understanding of the law is wrong or whatever is wrong. Like that's 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 the game, that's the fight. Um, and people understand that that's the fight. So that's one way that it comes out. I think the other way that it comes out is is going to what you were saying about just, you know, the Twitter lawyers, which are like the bane of my goddamn existence. Um, as, <laughs> you know, pe- people want everything that is bad to be illegal, right? Which is just not all how it does work. Or really, I don't think once, if you really kind of interrogate people, it's not how we want it to work, right? We don't want everything that we think is bad, we think is is is, is negative, to also <laughs> come with jail time. Like jail should be like super rare and harsh for for really bad conduct, right? So the, that that feeling that like there are people who do bad things and get away with it all the time um, really frustrates people. It frustrates me. Um, sometimes, but but we but there is there is the need to understand that like not every piece of bad conduct, not every um, uh, you know, it's like when people want to say like oh isn't lying illegal or lying should be illegal? A, it's not illegal. B, it shouldn't be illegal because then everybody would be in jail because <laughs> everybody lies at some point <laughs> on something. You know, I don't want to take all those cases. Are you kidding me? So, you know, I think it's those two places. One, people think the law is objective. It's not. Two, people think that all bad conduct is illegal conduct, and it's just not. Yeah, it's funny. I've actually been less engaged recently, Ellie, in Twitter legal stuff because it's just it's very tiresome to me. Like the, the conversation is always, when, you know, a lot of it's like, when's Trump going to prison? When's Trump going to prison? When's Trump going to prison or whatever? And so then and then there's a lot of legal commentators on there that make everything. OK, he took records to whatever Mar-a-Lago. He's going to prison for that. And then you'll have a certain group of people being like, well, Garland lacks guts. He's not tough. And so therefore he's not like taking these obvious crimes and prosecuting them. And like the truth is way more complicated than that. But no one really cares about about anything like that. And so it just it just evolves into, you know, uh, effect, like people what people want to see and what people want to hear is that every violation of everything from the Hatch Act 
to, um, you know, whatever, you know, making a false financial statement in, uh, you know, to a lender, which could be um, everything is like very easily prosecutable. And we do that all the time. And if if we just had the right prosecutors, they'd get they'd wrap this down. They'd wrap this up quickly. I I do. I I wanted to see. I'm going to push back a little bit. I want to defend Twitter after saying they've abandoned my existence. I'm going to defend Twitter law a little bit. Okay, just a little bit. All right, let's let's debate it. (laughs) A very nuanced defense. Let me see if I can make it. All right. So the 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 thing that I do think is important is that Twitter law, Twitter lawyers, people who are interested in law on Twitter, it does give us an insight into what people care about and what people think the law should do. Now, a lot of times what people think the law should do is not at all what the law should do, but, but sometimes it is. And, and, and remember the law, because the law is not objective, because the law is not being handed down to us from on high or being handed down to us from a computer, we can change it. So like if, if more people understood, so my kind of general philosophy, if more people understood how weak sauce the hatch act is, or how weak sauce the Presidential Records Act is. If more people are, in fact, outraged that Trump will not go to jail behind his blatant, wanton destruction of presidential records, well, then maybe we can get, inspire people to change that law, to, have, to vote for politicians who will change that law and put more teeth into our public corruption laws. One, one like, underreported story of our generation and certainly of the past like 10 years is how the Supreme Court has eviscerated public corruption acts, right? Has, has, has just with, with, with the Foster v. U.S., the Virginia case, um, j- j- just, taken, just taken public corruption and made it almost not a thing anymore, right? And if people understood how bad that is, then maybe we would elect politicians who were willing to change it. Maybe we could get something like HR1 passed. Maybe we could get ethics rules back. So that's just one example. But like, you know, I, I generally think, and this, this kind of inspires my entire career, if more people understood the law, more people would be as pissed as I am and desperate to change it. Wow. Yeah, I, I will say I actually agree with the thrust of what you said, which is we, the conversation should be, how do we change the laws so something like this never happens again? And I got to say, one the most frustrating thing to me right now, Ali, is we had the Trump era. It was crazy. It was now in some, you know, I'm sure we can have an argument about how what maybe it was, there, it was actually there were precursors to it and it wasn't quite as different as you might say. But it was it was radically bad. And there are a lot of things we want to never have happen again. But the, the discussion that I see is not about how do we change the law? It's not about, you know, how we can make sure that next time around it's easy to prosecute somebody for January 6th. It's easier to prosecute someone for January 6th, the Hatch Act violations or other things. What the discussion is, oh, it's so easy. The crimes are just sitting out there. And I think that the people who make these claims, I at least think some of them know better. They know that this stuff isn't so straightforward. They know that. You know, contempt of Congress is not that easy to prosecute, for example, or whatever the the issue of the day is. But I think there is an element of getting clicks or likes out of it. Yeah, but 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 like, why not both? Right. Like, because because <laughs> because like we can debate about how easy it is to to prosecute somebody for 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 contempt of Congress. That That's a that's a that's a legitimate debate in terms of like how how, you know, even when it happened. I caution people that 
Merrick Garland's likelihood of success in prosecuting Steve Bannon is not a slam dunk, right? Because the last person prosecuted for contempt of Congress got off, right? And it was a you know, Reagan era EPA person, but she got off, right? So, so those prosecutions are not easy. Filing the charges, on the other hand, is, is something that could really have happened already when we talk about Meadows. Um, and we talk about all of these other people who, who are just wantingly and flagrantly violating or, or ignoring January 6th committee subpoenas um, with really no good legal argument to do so, right? So we can both have a world where Merrick Garland was moving a little bit more quickly and a little bit more aggressively and a little bit more, one of the words that I've used before, uh, used before showily. Because people want to act like, oh, the showmanship is not important. No, if you look at why Biden was elected, if you look at where the energy on the left is, there, there is the need for some showmanship here. Some, some, some uh, outward looking like you're trying would, would, wouldn't go amiss right now, right? So we can, we can both have a prosecutor that's a little bit more aggressive than what we see out of Garland and not lose sight of the kind of more, uh, less, kind of less sexy um, more boring work, yet somehow more important work of shoring up our laws, as you say, so that these things don't happen again. But that kind of, so, so on the one hand, I kind of want to push Merrick Garland a little bit more. But on the other hand, we need to be pushing Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema uh, a little bit more because those those are the two people right now, as for, from where I sit, who are standing in the way of real reform and real ethics reform that this country d- desperately needs. So one of the things that I've been trying to get people to realize, J- uh, Joe Manchin wouldn't support HR1, which had a bunch of voting rights legislation and a bunch of ethics reforms and you know all that kind of stuff. He did support the Freedom to Vote Act. He basically wrote the Freedom to Vote Act. Now he didn't support it enough to like break the filibuster, but the Freedom to Vote Act is what Manchin supports, not HR1. What's the difference between the Freedom to Vote Act and HR1? All the ethics stuff are out of the Freedom to Vote Act. The stuff about how the president, uh, presidential candidates have to submit five years of tax returns, that's taken out. The stuff where you can't uh, give money, give federal money to businesses owned by the president's family, that stuff is out of HR1. All of the anti-corruption stuff are out of the Freedom to Vote Act that were in H.R. 1, somebody needs to ask Joe Manchin why. Somebody needs to ask Joe Manchin why the anti-corruption stuff is the stuff that he wouldn't support. Because I think getting to the heart of that answer and eventually electing politicians who are going to answer that question differently is just as important as uh, getting prosecutors who move more quickly and more aggressively um, when there are crimes that could be charged. Yeah, I have to say, though, and, and this is one area where we may disagree, is I'm wary of prosecutors more than you are, even though I used to be one. And because <laughs> I've seen prosecutors who don't exercise their discretion appropriately, who do things that are wrong. And so I'm very cautious. Like if a prosecutor is probably going to lose a case, they probably shouldn't bring it. Right. I mean, that should be prosecutors should bring cases they, they, that they can win and they should win. They should not be bringing cases that they think they're going to lose. And so. From my perspective, like we have two, the one thing that I have not liked on the internet lately is people like, like, oh yeah, like even if this case is a loser, let's just bring the case, let's charge them anyway, and like that's not within other in other contexts. We don't want that to happen. We talk a lot about how prosecutors are unfair in other contexts, and so to me, I'm very wary 
of prosecutors who do things. I'd actually rather have cautious prosecutors in certain respects. In other words, I want prosecutors to aggressively prosecute really heinous crimes. I don't want prosecutors to just drop the ball because there's challenges in a case or else we'd never have a child exploitation case brought, for example. But on the other hand, I also don't want prosecutors to charge things for the sake of charging them, to charge things just because it's going to get headlines in a newspaper and going to go down in flames. I feel like there's an element of that in that in the case that the Kyle Rittenhouse case, where I think that state prosecutors got a little over their skis and charged a much bigger case than they could prove. And they that they paid the price for it. I mean, there was a there's a lot of other things going on at that trial with that judge and so forth. But part of it also was that they just charged a lot of stuff that they could prove. And that that was, I think, a desire to, to have a bigger case than they than they should have. All right. What do you think about the uh, the debt, the, the, the eviction moratorium? thing that biden pulled right so like the the supreme court says you can't have the eviction moratorium biden does it anyway knowing full well that it's going to get um knocked down by the supreme court so from one perspective he should have done that because there was no way supreme court was going to go for it right from another perspective well first of all the supreme court isn't going for anything right now so i mean like you got a republican supreme court if you're just gonna if you're just gonna not do things because the supreme court's gonna um knock it down then you basically aren't going to do anything B, it puts the highlight on where the where the problem in the system is, right? That the problem is not that you can't get it fast, that, that Democrats don't want to have an eviction moratorium. The problem is that you have let conservatives control the Supreme Court. And now wh- whether that, you know, my, my problem with the eviction moratorium thing is that it wasn't made clear enough who was doing the dirt. But at, at, a, at a kind of philosophical level i kind of agree with doing this thing that you knew a court was going to to overturn to highlight the need of having a better court i think you know and I, and we could toss into the bucket uh similarly some of the covid restrictions that there was uh, not a certainty. There's never a certainty as to what a court's going to do. Okay, I've appeared before courts too many times. See, so there's always a chance the judges will do. A- Neil Gorsuch, Bostock. You never know. You never. You never well, you never know. I always say there's at least a five ten percent chance of just ra- pure randomness out there. But um, you know, I, I think that the the Biden administration made a calculated decision that having a mandate out there for COVID, employers are going to jump on that and mandate it and get people vaccinated. And no matter what happened in the course later, you are going to ultimately have this result in the short term. I don't, I, I view that differently than prosecutors. In other words, I, I politically elected, uh, democratically elected folks making a decision. Okay. We think the constitution does permit this and should permit it. And we're going to defend it in court and we're going to do this. And we understand that there's going to be legal recourse and we, we want to duke it out in the courts to me is different that a prosecutor saying, okay, I don't have the evidence and I'm going to bring it anyway, because to me, for better or worse, and I mean, you could argue that our system should be set up differently. Like a lot of discretion is given to prosecutors. Too much discretion. Perhaps. And so my point is it's so unfettered that if you don't, like if you don't have your default role being constrained prosecutors carefully, they can do some really evil things. Okay, so I agree agree with that, but but here's the last, last thing I'll say. If you can prove to me that a guy like Garland is going to be cautious in all of his prosecutions, so not, not just with the politically powerful, but in all of his prosecutions, he's going to bring the same cautious, restrained um, approach to 
uh, terrorists that he's prosecuting or insurrectionists that he's prosecuting or QAnon shamans that he's prosecuting, that he's going to bring to Donald Trump and Ivanka Trump and, and Donald Trump Jr., then I can at least give him points for intellectual consistency and say, yeah, let's go. That's just his way of doing it, right? But the, the problem becomes, and I don't know that we have enough evidence either way on this quite yet, but the problem becomes when there's a sense that Garland is willing to throw the book out of low-level, um, politically unconnected, relatively powerless people like the QAnon shaman, but isn't willing to throw that book at powerful, politically connected, important people um, like Mark Meadows, right? So like if you're in it, like whatever, whatever Merrick Garland is willing to do, whatever pressure Merrick Garland is willing to bring to bear on the guy with Viking horns, he best be able to be willing to bring to bear on the former White House chief of staff. Because if he's not willing to do both at the same time, well, then th- then that I can't get behind. Yeah, I, I can't I can't disagree with that at all. And I will just say people underestimate how hard it is to get convictions against really rich and powerful people. I used to do it. It was very, very hard doing being a white collar prosecutor uh, against very well-blooded defendants. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. Not a lot. Of, or maybe not a little. A lot about the Supreme Court. <laughs> One thing you and I agree about, and I and I think we, we don't have to spend a lot of time about it because I imagine our listeners agree to, to some extent is there's like a hell of a lot of qualified black women out there that could be on the Supreme Court. I know you, you and I talked about this a little bit online because I, I actually I know I know several qualified black women personally. Like, in other words, if I you just told me, Renata, do you know, like you personally or some random lawyer, do you know qualified black women to serve in the Supreme Court? I'd be like, yeah, I have a several names that I could give you of people that I either went to law school with. I practiced in front of I practiced against, um, you know, who are sitting in courts in different parts of the country. Um, this idea that we oh, it's just so hard to find somebody is a little silly. It's, you know. <laughs> Richard Posner, who I don't agree with on many things, but you know the famous Seventh Circuit judge likes to say, "Whoever said that Supreme Court justices were even smart?" Right? Like, <laughs> like the the idea, you know, I look in a country of what three hundred and thirty million people. I think conservatively, walking down walking down the street right now, we could find about a million and a half people who could be on Supreme Court tomorrow with no problems, right? Like, I just, like it's not like. A, it's not that hard of a job. It's a hard job. Don't get me wrong. Not everybody can do it. But like, you know, it's not, it's not like, it's not like going to the moon, right? It's not, it's not like programming rockets. It's reading with a legal mind and actually having like four or five research assistants helping you out. Like it's, it's, it's a doable job. So that's the, that's number one, like the actual qualification bar, not not quite as high as other people think, right? Number two, as and this is as you say, like once we understand what the qualifications are, there are qualified people from every walk of life in every part of this country doing all sorts of things. Qualified lawyers, even if we wanted to say you have to have a law degree, which again, you know, no constitutional requirement that Supreme Court justices have to have a law degree. But even if you want to just set the you know fundamental bar, you have to at least have a law degree. There are people all over this country who could do the job. So focusing on one underrepresented group, historically underrepresented group, um, there, there's that does not mean that you are going to get a less qualified candidate. That means you're going to get an as qualified candidate as anybody else. And when you look at the actual resumes of some of the people that are, that are being thrown around, you know, well, let me tell you something. 
Katanji Brown Jackson could could beat you on a test, listener. Right? Like that's <laughs> like she she gotta be fine. Right? You don't you don't have a better resume than she has. You don't have a better resume than Leandra Kruger has, right? You're just you're just you're gonna have an as good resume, perhaps. She's not gonna find anybody better. So the the idea that that, that we're somehow sacrificing qualifications um, uh, to make a black woman a Supreme Court justice is ridiculous to me. As is the idea that none of the criticism would be happening if he had just done it and not told anybody he was doing it. Because then people would accept. Man, did y'all not? Were y'all not here for Sonia Sotomayor? Did did y'all not hear the kind of ridiculous racist claptrap that people said about her? In fact, some of the people who are saying who are preemptively criticizing Biden's black woman nominee are people who are already on record saying that Sonia Sotomayor wasn't as smart or wasn't as qualified or wasn't as blah 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 um, as 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 a white Supreme Court justice. So the attacks were going to come anyway. I think that doing it this way weirdly counterintuitively perhaps takes race and sex out of the equation right because now we don't have to worry about identity politics he already said what he's going to do so now we can actually just within this subset just focus on 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 histories and qualifications and personal stories and professional experience because race and sex off the table because he's already going to do it this way yeah, well, I, I just uh, I I think it's <laughs> I think Supreme Court uh, Supreme Court selections are always based on all sorts of factors. Whether it's like I think Brennan was selected because he was like a Catholic or you know from mm-hmm. a certain part of the country. I just think that's always part of it. It's sort of like saying you can't select your vice president based on gender or something. It's like come on, like I mean, I just it's it people select every selection ever for any of these very important. Uh, appointments is always based on a whole variety of factors it's a political appointment i know it's a political appointment because it's appointed by the president and confirmed by the senate it's a political freaking appointment Uh, why wouldn't why wouldn't the 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 selection of that be fundamentally political it has been in the past you know reagan promised to nominate a woman he did trump promised to nominate a woman to replace ginsburg he did like I, I I don't I don't understand people who who want to who want to pretend that these positions aren't political, um, but they're but they but they always come out when whenever um, a minority or a woman uh, uh, gets an opportunity. Yeah, well let's let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Court as it stands now because you have I think pretty strong opinions about Chief Justice Roberts, stronger opinions than most people. In other words, if I asked on Twitter, what do you think of? And I did put every Supreme Court justice. I think Roberts is somebody who, like the 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 right wingers that I follow, would maybe not like him about certain things. Obviously, people on the left wouldn't either. But like he's generally perceived as like this neutral, moderate guy, right? That he had that that you know he had that that kind of BS referee quote that he said during his nomination that uh, I think. But people, because he's not as radical as certain people on the court, uh, he's gotten a, a reputation that I think. You've made a, a pretty a strong argument is incongruent with, with how he is. I want our listeners to be exposed to that. People think that Roberts is fair, and they come up with that opinion because there are certain cases where Roberts has sided with liberals, Obamacare being the, 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 the big number one thing that people point to, and there are other cases that he has sided with conservatives. And for some reason in our society, Siding with one side one sometimes and the other side the other times seems like fairness, right? Like that sounds like what we should do. 
um, you know, as if like, you know, oh, sometimes I side with the invading Mongol horde and sometimes I side with the Chinese government. I'm, I'm reasonable. Right? That, uh, I, I have little patience for that particular argument. When you look at Roberts's history, there are, there are, you said that he's not as radical as the other, some of the other conservatives. And I think you're absolutely right when it comes to certain issues of executive power. Um, but when it comes to racial justice, when it specifically comes to voting rights, there has been no bigger enemy to voting rights, to the voting rights of black and brown people in this country than John Roberts. In fact, his first legal job, so, you know, after he goes to law school and he clerks and he does whatever, his first actual, you know, paid legal job was working for the Reagan Justice Department to find a way to attack the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. That was his first job. Now, he lost that battle in, you know, Reagan times, even Ronald Reagan, who, you know, started his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That's Mississippi Burning Town for those playing along at home, and said that the Voting Rights Act humiliates the South. Even that guy, Ronald Reagan, eventually had to (laughs) um, approve of the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act, which basically meant that you you didn't have to approve intent to discriminate in voting rights. The simple effect of discrimination was enough, which is useful because not because state legislatures don't always say, I hate Negroes when they're making their racist laws. Sometimes they just have laws that have a racist effect. And like, ooh, who could have known this was going to be bad for Negroes, right? So the 1982 amendments made um, uh, intent not the, the key issue. Roberts was against it in 1982. And he finally won in 2021 um, in the Brnovich v. Arizona v. v U.S. decision, where essentially that case, although it was written by Alito, essentially that case overturned the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. And that is just one example, right? We can go to Shelby County v. Holder, where Roberts eviscerated Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That's the preclearance section of the Voting Rights Act. We can go to Rucho, to the Rucho decision, where he eviscerated uh, gerrymandering, ruled that gerrymandering is non-justiciable, basically call, letting open season happen, happen on gerrymandering at the state level. Roberts has been an enemy to voting rights for his entire career. And I don't know how more anti-Black you need to be than be against Black people voting rights. Because if, if, if Black people do not have the ability to participate equally in the polity, then, then what are we even talking about, right? Then, then some of these other things don't even matter. If Roberts does not think that the 15th Amendment is, you know, important, if he does not understand that the Voting Rights Act is the single most important piece of legislation I believe ever passed in this country, then... Uh, I guess the best way of putting it, then then I don't care what he thinks about some other issues of racial or social justice, because he's already against us on the most important one. Yeah, I I think what one thing people lose sight of with John Roberts, and I think I I viewed the thrust of some of what you had said about him is John Roberts was somebody who is the product of the Federalist Society, sort of right wing uh, attempt to take over the courts. And he was sort of a dar- kind of the darling of that group, seen as kind of was groomed to be a judge as part of that movement. And he comes from that movement. 
And so to say to try to separate him from that movement or to suggest that he's actually separate from that movement is completely historically inaccurate. And basically, he is in many ways the Roberts court, because this is what this is going to be called, no matter what, even if he's in the minority in certain decisions, this is the Roberts court. He in many ways is the poster child or the representative for that entire movement in the law. The thing that unites a Bush judge with a W. Bush judge with a Trump judge is hostility is hostility to voting rights. It's not anti-abortion. Although they tend to generally be anti-abortion, it's not abortion. Although they tend to be anti-gay, it's not gay rights. The thing that unites them is their hostility to voting rights in all of its forms. That is why they have been picked for their jobs, both at the Supreme Court level, but all throughout the federal uh, judicial system. I don't know how to make people understand that. I don't know how to make people understand that, that is wrong. I don't know how to make people understand that the 15th Amendment was ignored in this country for 100 years. That, that literally white people on the Supreme Court, both conservative and left of center, if you want, if you want to call some of them that, ignored the 15th Amendment for 100 years, treated it like it was a suggestion as opposed to a new principle of fair government. The 19th Amendment meant nothing, nothing at all for Black women and brown women for the first 65 years. So when I say the Voting Rights Act is the most important piece of legislation ever passed in America, it is literally the only piece of legislation that makes real the promise of the 15th and 19th Amendments. See, like the 14th Amendment, we've had like, I don't know, six or seven laws trying to make the 14th Amendment real, right? The Civil Rights Act of 1866, Civil Rights Act of 1871, Civil Rights Act of 1875, Civil Rights Act of 1964. We've got a lot on 14th Amendment. We had one piece of legislation trying to make the 15th Amendment real, and that was the Voting Rights Act, and that is what John Roberts has set himself against. That is what Samuel Alito has set himself against. That is what Clarence Thomas has set himself against. And thus, that is our current problem. Yeah, and just so, and just for our listeners who aren't familiar with the the, the numbering in the Constitution, the Fifteenth Amendment is the is the amendment that says that you cannot stop people from voting on account of race or color or prior condition of servitude. In other words, previously being a slave. And yet, even though that amendment was right after the Civil War, eighteen sixty five or thereabouts. It, realistically, black people in the South could not vote, you know, for a hundred years, right? I mean, it was it, essentially. I mean, there's a whole slew of laws, and this sort of beyond what we can cover here. But there's a whole slew of laws and rules and practices and intimidation and all violence, all sorts of things that kept such effectively made it that black people in the South couldn't vote. Yep, and all the, the whole time, by the way, remember the whole time. The people passing those laws were saying, oh, it's not that we're not that we're preventing black people from voting. That would be unconstitutional. We're just they, they, the, the, the trick is always to say there's some race, quote unquote, race neutral law that just so happens um, to disproportionately impact black people. But it's not an actual black people can't vote law because that would be unconstitutional. That's what they said in 1902. That's what they were saying in 1888. 
that's what they were saying in 1963, right? It's the 1965 Voting Rights Act that said, you know what, but you're all racist and we're going to stop it. And I, and, and you can't, and yet 2013, Robert says that section five is wrong. 2021, Robert says that section two doesn't really matter as much. I mean, Alito literally says that, you know, in his Brnovich decision, Alito literally writes that, you know, some racism is not enough to violate the Voting Rights Act. Well, who gets to define some, Sam? You? Why would you get to make that decision, Sam? Can't answer me that. So it just, it's, it's, again, again, I would love to, 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 if, if somebody gave me a superpower right now, it would be to say what I just said to you, um, to Joe Manchin in his ear every damn night of his life until he changes his mind. Um, because right now he's the problem. Right now he and, and Kristen Cinema are the reasons why we can't do anything. Although, I mean, I said this before, but quite frankly, let's say you pass the Freedom to Vote Act or you pass, you know, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, then the Supreme Court will just knock that down too. Yeah, yeah, I have to say I'm not very optimistic right now to federal solutions and voting rights. I mean, one thing that is also a kind of an incongruence out there is. People are very concerned about this issue, but they're not interested in getting engaged in the state and local level where so many of these battles are getting fought. Like, I, you know, in other words, whether it's whether it's, uh, you know, specific laws that are meant to reduce and suppress vote or, for example, gerrymandering that often just effectively ruins and destroys the power of certain groups. There, there's not a lot of interest and focus on, you know, a state house, right? Or getting, it's just, I, you can't get people interested and excited about nope. those races. If, if Democrats had the turnout that they have in presidential elections, in state and local elections, this whole country would look different. Even in some, you know, very red states, it would look very different. Um, you can't, it's, it's hard to get people to, to lock in because they're process stories, right? Because it's hard to get people to lock in on, how many polling stations are open in Houston, right? That's a critical issue. That's hard to get people um, to, to dial in for that, right? It's hard to get people to dial in to Alabama made one district minority, majority, majority, um, sorry, majority, minority, when they should have made two. Like it's, it's hard to get people to see on the ground how that matters. It matters a great deal, but you can't, you can't always make that, it's a hard sell for people who, you know, are busy and they have lives and, you know, other concerns. Um, so, you know, it's, it's why we need stronger, better leaders who are spending their time making that case to us, right? Like if it, if, if it had been me, I would have been, you know, I, if I had been in the Senate, which I'll note I'm not for probably very good reasons, uh, <laughs> I would have been like everything stops. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have voted for a bill. I wouldn't have voted for a budget amendment. I wouldn't have voted for nothing until we get voting rights passed. That was that. That was the only. That would have been the first and only thing um, that, that you got. And if you needed, if we were 50-50 and you needed my vote to pass something, well, you you better pass voting rights because you ain't getting my vote for anything else without that. But that's not a commitment that our Democratic senators made. So. You know, we didn't have, that's not the commitment that the president of the United States made. As much as, you know, Biden won, he pounded the table. I won't forget black people. You know, what, what were the two things that black people asked him for, really? I mean, we think about it. Like he was, he, he, black people saved his campaign. Um, 
in South Carolina. He understands that he couldn't have been president without the overwhelming support of black people in this country. What, what was the ask? Well, one, we would like voting rights. That's That was pretty obvious. That was Stacey Abrams, Georgia. That's why we got to do Warnock and Ossoff. That was a voting rights election. So that gave him the Senate. And if I'm not mistaken, there was this whole, it's hard for me to remember through the haze of history, but I seem to remember like an entire summer during a pandemic where black people were out in the streets. Now, Now, what was that for? Oh yeah, that was for policing. And yet the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, that also hasn't happened. Um, from from this administration so like the the two big asks haven't been delivered i I don't know why (laughs) do you think well do you think it's can we just blame joe manchin i mean in other words in another world where charles dickens was the author you'd be like the ghost of christmas past whispering in his ear like that's what i thought of when you were saying that a minute ago Uh, exactly but but (laughs) but is it is it really those is it the fact that the majority in the senate is just too slim like in other words if biden had 55 45 in the senate it would be a different story or 60 40 would be a different story I'm of two minds of that. One, I'm old enough to remember Joe Lieberman, right? I'm old old enough to remember when we had had 59 votes in the Senate and then we were told we needed 60. Like the, there's there's always a Democrat who at the finish line um, decides to pull pull something um, and be the excuse for for why this important social change can't happen, right? Um, that's, That's just been the history of this party. Um, and so I'm not so sure that if, you know, if you replace Joe Manchin and Chris and Kristen Cinema, well, then Chris Coons and Diane Feinstein would rise to take their place is kind of how I feel. But sure, for the for, for right now, the villains are Manchin and Cinema. And my response to that is like, there's got to be something those two people want. I, I don't know what it is, but but there's got to be something that they want that you could hold hostage in order to get them to do the right thing on the otherwise massively popular issue of should everybody get to vote, right? Like, I don't know. They got to have, they got to have a dog, right? They got to have a cat. Go, go get me, go get me their cat and <laughs> hold that hostage before to make the vote. Right. Like, I don't know what it is, but there's got to be something. There's got to be some leverage that you can, that you could have used on those people now, I mean, I think it's legitimately too late. Can you, um, can you uh, leave the cats out of this, Ellie? Seriously, <laughs> man. <laughs> no animal cruelty. The guy want dessert, right? Like, I, I go take all their ice cream. Whatever it is, there's got to be some way to put pressure on them. Or at least there could have been. I don't think there is now. I don't think there is anymore. Because the, they've gotten what they're going to get. And now they're just all in, in midterms mo- more, mode. And as I'm sure many of your listeners saw, apparently, according to Brett Kavanaugh, we're too close to the election now anyway. Yeah. That was the most recent decision from the Supreme Court about the Alabama uh, redistricting case where Brett Kavanaugh and friends decided that here we are, February, before an election in November, but we are now in the penumbra. This is from the same people who put Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court after the election to replace the person who nominated her started. But now... We are too close, too close to an election to uh, to stop Alabama's racist maps from from taking from taking effect. Um, I certainly believe that if we're too close to the election to stop Alabama from being racist, 
the same Supreme Court will rule that we are too close to an election um, to restore voting rights to black people. Well, let me I, I want to take a step back. I know I've taken a lot of your time uh, before we go. I, what I want to do is you've I think one thing that I think people can glean from everything that they've heard here is that maybe the way they think about the law, maybe the way that they approach you know, uh, legal issues and their thoughts about legal issues are skewed. Maybe they have assumptions that are not accurate. So tell me, before we go, I want you to tell our listeners, what could they or should they change about their view of the law? Understand that it's an adversarial process and that your job is to make your best argument. Just, Just understand that. Understand that your job, if you're talking about the law, is to make your best argument for why the law should do what you want it to do or what you think is going to help people versus what they want it to do and what they think will help people. Like just, just go and give me your advocacy because advocacy is right in the, in the definition of how our system is supposed to operate. So I, I am sick of people just tr- trying to act like the law is something that is, that is uh, given to us from on high right from Moses comes down from a mountain with laws etched into no that's not how it works it's an adversarial process that requires activism and advocacy to make changes for the future wow yeah i i definitely think people overestimate and over put too much of their reliance on courts for social change i, mean, I think courts have a very important role in this society but movements are what generate social change in my opinion not courts i do before we go uh patty did we have a question from a listener before we, we had go? a couple yeah but i was having so much fun listening to this conversation and also i still <laughs> i now i want to go to law school um but also be a part of the social change it's a trap <laughs> it's a trap um, well, first of all, before before I ask this question, I do want to make sure that people know about your book because I want to pick up your book. Uh, let people know about that as well. Yes, it's uh, called Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. It's available for pre-order now, so please do that. Um, that helps a lot. Um, and it'll be uh, uh, on the shelves at a bookstore near you on March 1st. It's basically, from what I just said, right, it, it's, it's my advocacy, it's my argument that the law, that the Constitution should be interpreted the way I want it interpreted, <laughs> as opposed to the way the conservatives want it interpreted. I kind of explain that their grounding philosophy of originalism kind of constantly hobbles us to the best possible ideas of 18th century slavers and colonists. And that we can do better. And so I argue for what we can do better and how we can do better. And I try to argue it in such a way that that you can, I really wanted this book to be something that people could deploy in their own lives against the conservatives in their own lives. Like so often you'll hear, you know, these, we've really, because, you know, one of the things that conservatives are great at are these like pithy, you know, one-liners. Well, I just think that the Constitution should be interpreted like the founders. And it seems so like, who wouldn't want that? I'll tell you why you wouldn't want that. And I tell you why you wouldn't want that with like real world examples that you can throw back in their faces um, um, when you hear it. So that's the book. And I hope people find it useful um, as well, as well as, you know, entertaining and, and accessible. That might be better for me than going to law school at 50. Um, so here's the question. Uh, so an, a listener asked, how did the shadow docket come about? Don't see explicitly me- mentioned in article three anywhere. I understand its intent, but seems odd. SCOTUS can choose its own shadow docket cases, causing potential issues in separation of powers and creating a power beyond just legal interpretations. 
So I'm going to answer that question two ways. One, there's nothing inherently sinister about the shadow docket because it's just an emergency process, right? People understand the law moves slowly. And so we understand that there, there are some times where the law needs to move faster because things are happening like right now, because things are happening that could be irrevocable if left unchecked, right? So like if you think about your kind of classic death penalty case, right? That is, you know, somebody's about to die. There's, they don't have time for, 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 you know, to wait for a hearing in October. No, you got about to die today. Let's go. Right. And so there's nothing inherently sinister about having an emergency appeals process. The problem is that you should only handle real emergency through that emergency process. Right. And gay people adopting children is not an emergency. The uh, uh, women accessing their constitutional rights that they passed since 1973 in Roe v. Wade is not an emergency. And so the conservatives using the shadow docket to, through emergency procedures, um, stop essentially um, normal operations of law and constitutional and the constitution, that's where the problem comes from. So that's kind of why it's a problem. In terms of how it became this way, it, I, it really does go back to the death penalty. Uh, uh, Stephen Vladek, uh, uh, who's an, a, a great kind of legal commentator and, and lawyer, um, he's, he's uh, writing a book about this. And uh, he was just actually literally today on Twitter saying that in his research, he sees that the, the use of emergency appeals really spiked in the early 80s, right after the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty. And the the reason was is because, again, people were about to die. And so they kept, you know, having these emergency appeals to the Supreme Court. And the court used to just have like any old justice, like you're the justice, you catch it, you, you make your decision, you move on. But because there became such a split on the court in terms of uh, uh, justices who were pro or against the death penalty, that instead of like leaving it to just one judge, they would kind of convene as a nine again for every death penalty appeal and those became that's kind of when the shadow docket really kind of got going it really does go back to the state's desire to kill people yeah one other thing i would just say the important thing is also the shadow docket doesn't generate the the briefing beforehand where people are going to you know the the level of briefing or the explanation of those decisions that you would have in a regular case like in other words if they're going to take reproductive rights away from hundreds of millions of women in the United States, um, they should, uh, I think they not only do, do those women have a right to have everything heard, like all that should be sussed out in the ordinary process where there's lots of opportunity for amicus briefs and all sorts of just, you know, the, the ordinary process surrounding that. And then a very extensive decision, uh, you know, explaining exactly why that's happening and who voted for it and why and who voted against it and why is that would you agree with that ellie 100 the, the least they can do the least they can do is sign their name to their own bs um and and, and it's also like just from a legal perspective you know people always are it goes to one of uh, a question i get a lot is you know what's the point of having a dissent right um this is especially kind of coming up now because we're going to nominate this black woman who will be in the minority and mainly be writing dissents for the next, you know, five to 30 years, depending on whether Democrats ever get out of their own way. Uh, what's the value of that? Well, the value of having written opinions and dissents is that it sets the legal debate for future generations. And so if these people don't tell me why 
women suddenly don't have rights to their own bodies, then it becomes much more difficult for me to fight against them um, in the future that they were wrong or, or explaining why they're wrong. And, you know, all these, all these reasons, a, dis, a good dissent uh, lights the way to the legal arguments of the future. That's why they're important. So doing this all in the kind of quick slipshod fashion um is 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 wrong it's not just it, it's not just uh, uh what's the one I'm looking for it's not just unseemly it it actually makes the, the it cheapens the entire institution when they do it this way well i i couldn't agree more ellie i just one thing that a non-lawyer may not realize is how much impact certain dissents have had uh, in our jurisprudence over the years. Uh, and many of those dissents have ultimately later turned into majority opinions a generation or even a number of years later. Well, Ellie, I got to tell you, I'm, and I'm glad that Patty brought up your book. I, I'm going to be reading your book. I'll pre-order the book. So I, I'm excited. So thank, thank you so much for joining us. I got to tell you, this has been the most entertaining discussion we've had on this podcast. So thank you are just absolutely a breath of fresh air and a, and a fun person to talk to. Thank you so much for, you know, teaching us things and, and spending some time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 